I'm sure you all know this, but there's 439 million uh, wearable smart devices in North America. I know you all knew that, right? 439 million smart devices. Most of those are probably smartphones, or not smartphones, but smart watches. Most of us don't wear our phones, smart watches. And, uh, and that's North America, not just the United States. There's 335 million people in the United States approximately, so there's more smart devices in North America than there are people in the United States of America uh, because we're finding that we're, we love tracking data. We're statistically oriented. Uh, I'm wired up that way too. We, we like to see all that data. The cool thing about some of these smart devices, they let us know how we're doing. Are we, are we worthy? Are we making it happen? Are we, are we getting things done? Are we earning our, our stripes in life? Because it'll let you know. It just You can look down at your device and, and see how things are going. You can compete with people. You can do all kinds of things to find out how worthy you are. Now, the smart device uh, that I wear around my wrist uh, most of the time is, uh, let me show a picture of it. It looks like this. It is all designed around three rings. Like I can look right now and I can tell you, um, I've stood five hours, well, excuse me, I haven't stood five hours, I stood at least one minute out of five hours today. Worship must have been pretty good, I got six minutes of exercise in. Uh, six minutes of exercise in worship, burnt 275 active calories already today. And so the whole concept of this smart watch, and you may not have this particular one, but I bet there's some kind of metric that your watch watches after to see if you're making it happen and hitting your goals. And so those are the three things that this watch goes for. Stand one minute every hour for at least 12 hours a day. Uh, 600 is how it's preset, but me being, you know, the incredible guy I am, I, I bump mine up to 800 active calories and 30 minutes of exercise a day. So I can look down at any time and let you know how I'm doing. If I'm measuring up, sometimes Darlene and I'll be talking and I'll just stand up and kind of pace around while we're talking. She said, what are you doing standing? I said, my watch told me to. My watch says time to stand. Because of 10 minutes to the hour on the nose, if I've not stood in that hour, my watch will tell me, you need to stand. And so I go, I need to stand. So I stand and talk and pace a little. And then it says, you did it. And I go, oh, I did it. I mean, how good am I? You know, this is awesome. A little later in the day, if I'm not really hitting my goals, I'll get this little notification on my watch, and they'll say, you can still do it. You know, I, I appreciate the positive attitude. At least it doesn't say, you lazy bum, get up and do something. It says, you can still do it. And so, yeah, I can still do it. Sometimes I'll be heading off to bed, and I'll look at my watch, and I'll have burnt like 782 active calories for the day, and, and so I'll just start walking in circles around the house, you know. <laughs> Darlene, I say, what are you doing? I say, I got to burn 18 more calories before I go to bed. So I got I to walk around the house and burn those calories. Now, we all know this. If I didn't burn those 18 calories, it would, the world wouldn't come to an end. But, you, you know, we're data-driven. We got to make these things happen. Then we compete with one another. You can actually compete with other people with your smart devices. And we can compete. And then you can look at it every day. It'll send you an update on who you're competing with and how you did. And if you beat everybody, you can say, Whew, I am so good. And if you don't, you can say, what a lazy bum I am. You know, it's interesting the emotions that can come from, from a watch. It's, it's interesting, too, that when you do win those competitions, remember that little uh, nursery rhyme? It said this, little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, ah, oh, what a good boy am I. You know, what? 
you were given a pie that you didn't even bake, but you, you found a plum, so you're awesome. Well, that's what stats will do for us. They'll let us know whether we're measuring up, whether we're hitting our marks, whether we're making things happen, whether we're not, whether we're worthy, whether we're not worthy. And we're kind of data-driven like that. Something inside us, we want to know, are we hitting the mark? Well, today I want to talk about the judgment of the law. The judgment of the law. We looked at last week, and I'm not going to re-preach the message, but we looked at last week that the law that Moses brought, it's in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, verses 7 through 9, if you want to look it up. Because last week I said, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, brings death and condemnation. And I think some of you thought, okay, we need to sit down and talk with this guy. How dare him talk about the Ten Commandments like that? I said, I didn't make that up. The Bible says it. Paul said that. He said, the ministry of the Ten Commandments brought by Moses was a ministry of death. Think about that. It's interesting, isn't it? It brought death. He said this, though. That ministry came with glory, but it was fleeting. Moses' face lit up under the presence of God and the glory of God, and his face actually began to fade over time. It's a beautiful visual example of how the law was. The law came with glory, but it was fleeting. It started getting Less and less and less and less. And it says, if the ministry that brought condemnation, the Ten Commandments, if the ministry that brought condemnation had glory, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the ministry of salvation in Jesus Christ. We get the deposit of the Holy Spirit in us. It's more glorious than the law. So, there's something in us, though, that likes to, you know, judge things, likes to know for measuring up. That's the beauty of the law. You can know by looking at the law how you're doing. But here's the deception of it. You're not really doing as good as you think you are, even if you think you're doing good. Because God is impeccably holy in every metric that could be judged. So I want to look at Galatians, because this little town of Galatia that this guy named Paul was preaching to and establishing a church in, uh, he was originally named Saul, and I probably tell you this every time, but I want you to get the backstory. This guy named Saul is going to crush out Christianity. He's going to smash Christianity. It's a false religion. It's a cult. He's going to crush it. But on his journey to go crush it, he's got letters of, of recommendation and approval from the Jewish council that he can imprison, even kill if he has to, anyone who's a believer. And so he's on the journey to do this. When he encounters the resurrected Jesus, the one who died, was buried, and rose again, totally changed the trajectory of his life. Wouldn't you think that would? And so all of a sudden, he becomes like a church planner, and he's on fire for the Lord Jesus because he's encountered the resurrected Jesus. So he's writing these people in Galatia, and I want to look at these things because there's some powerful truths in there. It says this. Now, I want to remind you, he changed his name to Paul. Paul was a Rule keeper of the rule keepers. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the best of the best when it came to obeying the law and following the rules. And listen to what he said. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. We're going to find three. He's going to repeat this truth three times in just two verses. He said, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Did you all hear that? If you go, what's he mean by the works of the law? By obeying the law, by following the rules of the law. So let's read on. Well, how are we justified then? Justified, think of this, being made right before God, because justified may not be a word you use a lot. 
How are we then? But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not justified or made right with God by the works of the law, but we are justified, made right with God, by faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. There's a second time he's mentioned it. Not by the works of the law. Do you think he's trying to prove a point? Not by the works of the law. Then we read on. Because by the works of the law, what's the next two words? No one. But by the works of the law, no one will be justified or made right before God. So three times, two sentences, he says, the works of the law is not our solution for our sin problem. Jesus is. Then he goes on teaching these Galatians. By the way, the Galatians, he's teaching this because the Galatians started off with a bang, man. They believed what they heard. Paul actually says this. Because somebody came to them and said, you know what, this Jesus thing is wonderful and beautiful and your faith in Christ is great, but you need to add to that all these Jewish laws. And man, Paul was livid. He told these Galatians, he said, who bewitched you? Who cut in on you? You were running a fantastic race. He said, I want to ask you just one question. Did God work miracles among you because you obeyed the law or because you believed what you heard? Hmm. God worked miracles among them because they believed what they heard. So he's telling them, don't go under the law. It won't work. And then in Galatians 3, 23 and 25, he says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. You see his heart here. It's the way of faith, the way of faith, Jesus. Let me put it to you another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So the law was our guardian until what? Until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This is a master law keeper. This is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This is a guy who understands the Jewish system and was a fantastic law keeper. Just to let you know, the universal laws of God are good. They're pure. They're holy. They're beautiful. In case you're thinking, this guy doesn't like the Ten Commandments. He doesn't like you know, the principles of God. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. There's one problem with them. Us. We're the problem. We are not good rule keepers. We are not good law keepers. So if you try to find your salvation by the law. Now I want to pause because you can love Jesus and be going to heaven, but there can still be something in you because I think it's programmed as, I get that, but I need to do these things to earn something with God. No, you don't. Jesus did all the earning. You're to receive. But I want you to know that if you try to find your salvation, say, I'm not going to receive Jesus. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to obey the laws of God. I'm going to make this happen. God says basically, go ahead and give it a try. Give it a whirl. Have at it. But he also tells us this. I just want you to know this. If you're going to keep the law, you have to keep all of it, all the time. All of it, all the time. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, think about this. Billy Ballinger I mentioned, you know, he did drugs, he partied, he stole things. I'm sure he broke into places. I don't know how many book laws are on the books in the United States of America, but I'll just make up a figure. Don't quote this. I'm just making something up for illustration. Let's say there's 10,000. 
Billy Ballinger couldn't go before the judge and say, look, I only broke five. There's 10,000, I only broke five. If you break one, you're a criminal and a lawbreaker. So Jesus said, yeah, you, if you're going to try to get right through the law, uh, good luck to you because you have to keep all of them all of the time. And then it's like being in competition with God. If you can imagine God's got a smartwatch and you've got a smartwatch and it's listing all the rules and regulations and laws that need to be kept, so you're going to compete with him. And so every day you get the download. Guess what? God was 100% on in every metric known to man every time. And you look at yours and you said, ooh, God was 100% and I was 2%. Okay, what what do we do? I'm going to work harder tomorrow. So we go and we obey and we work and we struggle and we stress and we push and we try. And then the next day we look and we go, ooh, I made it to 3%. Okay, do you realize you're not going to win this one? God's perfect, righteous, holy, flawless every single time. And by the way, I want you to know this. That's not God's plan. God's plan is not for you to compete with him. That's not his plan. That's our plan in our minds. I'm going to do everything I can do right so I can please God and make God happy. And even as a Christian, sometimes we think, I've got to do everything right to stay in for another day. I hope I did enough right to stay in for another day. That's, I want to say this so clearly. That is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. Christianity is this. We tried, and we can't do it. And Jesus said, I'll do it for you. And we'll see that in Scripture. This, by the way, this teaching, although it may be uh, odd to you or unique to you, this is just all throughout the New Testament. I don't have to, like, struggle to find a couple verses. Just book after book in the New Testament reveals this. So we're not in competition with God. When we compete with God, one of two things will happen. If I say, I, I got to be good, I got to do all these things. Now, I know you can sometimes hear what I'm not saying. Some people can walk away and say, Tracy said he doesn't even care if we're good. God doesn't care if we're good. Being good doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if I'm trying to earn my salvation by doing good, I'm in trouble. I can't be good enough to measure up to an impeccable, flawlessly holy God. And so what happens is one of two things. One is we keep looking at our spiritual smartwatch and realize we're ruining it, we're, we're blowing it every single day, we're dismal failures. And then we live a life of shame and condemnation and feel beat up, and we may either just say, I'm just not even going to try anymore, or we may say, I'm going to try every day, but I'm going to live every day in discouragement because I can't measure up. Or the second thing we do, and this is what the Pharisees did, the second thing we do is we start thinking, I'm better than other people, so I must really be good. Now, obviously, you surround yourself with people who are not as good as you in your own mind. And so you start getting what I call you're deceived and self-righteous. Remember one of the Pharisees? Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee and a sinner that go into the temple to pray. The Pharisees are noted for being wonderful rule keepers. The Pharisee begins to pray. I love how the King James says, he says, and the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself. I like that. I like that line because, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, he's not talking to me, God said. He's talking to himself. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he began to list the things he did. By the way, nothing wrong with anything he listed. The, the story's not about telling you, oh, yeah, don't do those things. Those are awful. They're good things. The Pharisee's listing the good things he did. And he said, and I thank you. I'm not like this sinner here. I'm sure better than this person, the publican or the sinner, 
beat his chest and could not even look up to heaven and said, oh God, be merciful to me, forgive me a sinner. And Jesus said, when those two left the temple, one left right before God and one didn't. And guess what? It was the sinner who said, have mercy on me, that left right with God, and the self-righteous person did not leave right with God. Jesus didn't have a lot of nice things to say about those who thought they could be righteous by just keeping rules. In Matthew 23, if you want to read that this week, there's like, I think there's like seven woes Jesus is saying to the, the Pharisees. Woe unto you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law. Woe unto you. One of the woes is this. Woe unto you, you Pharisees and teachers of the law. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. So it's like you go to the tomb and somebody's taking paint and they painted it up. It looks beautiful. But when you step in, you smell the stench of death, decaying bodies. It's just, it's, they're full of dead men's bones. And Jesus said, that's what you Pharisees are like. Now, that did not make Jesus popular with the Pharisees because they thought they were the cream of the crop. In fact, one time, God says this to the Pharisees. Jesus says, you will shut up the way of heaven to people. You, you're not going, but you're making sure nobody else gets there. Now, think about this. These are the religious cream of the crop, best of the best, and when it comes to keeping rules, and God says... Jesus said, you're not going there, and you shut up the kingdom from those who want to get in. He said to the Pharisees, I think it's all in the same chapter, he says to the Pharisees, hey, you know what? He said, guys, he said, you'll travel over land and sea to make a single convert, to, to convince somebody to get into Judaism. And once you succeed and get them in, listen to what Jesus said to them. You will make them twice the child of hell that you are. Wow. We, see, we picture Jesus, he's so nice all the time. He never says anything. He's never, you know, he doesn't judge. I hear that all the time, especially in our culture. If the church is just more like Jesus, he never judged. He never said anybody was wrong. He never said anything was bad. He did all kinds of things. Now, I do agree with this. We, the church, do need to be more like Jesus. Jesus did not have a judgmental spirit, but he would speak the truth in love. When he talked to the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler walked away sad because he loved his money and he wouldn't change his ways. And the Bible says that Jesus loved him. Didn't say he was angry at him or mad at him. He loved him and he walked away, unfulfilled in his spiritual journey. So, let's get this out of the way. Are we free to stop keeping the law? Are we free to stop following rules? Well, as a way to earn salvation and eternal life, yes. But don't, don't lose me here. But to live a sinful life free from guilt and free from godliness, in other words, wow, thank God, I'm saved by Jesus. Now I can go live like the devil and not feel bad about it. That's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message. But the message of the gospel is you can't earn it. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. Because again, we're not comparing ourselves with somebody else. We're comparing ourselves with God. Do you want to get to heaven? Then you need to be as righteous and holy as God. Well, I'll, I'll never make that. Yeah, you're, you're starting to get it. You won't. Well, what's my hope then? Jesus. We'll see that in scripture here in just a second. So let's look at this. In Romans 8, 1 through 4, Therefore, there is, what's the next word? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No condemning, no condemnation right now, this very second, for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are Christians. There's no condemnation. Why not? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's what Paul was saying to the Corinthians last week. The law is a ministry of death and condemnation. Very words we use here. But the law of the Spirit is more glorious and it brings life. So let's read on. For what the law was powerless to do. I want to be very careful. It doesn't say for what the law was bad, it was awful, it was sinful, it was horrible, it was ungodly. It doesn't say that. The law is beautiful and pure and holy. The problem with the law was, what it couldn't do, is that it was weakened by our flesh, by our humanity. So what we couldn't do, God did, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, Jesus was not a sinner, but he came, he clothed himself in a human body. So the son came in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Now, in the Old Testament, they would get that, a sin offering, was you would bring an animal, and you would, there would be the shedding of blood, this animal, this dove or goat or lamb or bull would be killed, the blood would be spilled, all your sins would be transferred to that animal. But here's the problem. You had to do it again next week and 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 next week for the rest of your life. Because the blood of bulls and goats, the scripture says, can never take away sin. But when Jesus shed his blood, Hebrews teaches us that his blood solved the sin problem once and forever. And when he was done, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and it was done. It was done. Jesus doesn't go back to the cross again. He doesn't die again. Because his the power of his sinless, flawless life and blood solved the sin problem forever, forever, if we'll receive it. So let's read on. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his son the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin. Uh, I love this. He didn't condemn you. He condemned sin. John 3, 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.18, though, tells us if you don't turn to the Son, you're condemned already. So you, you were born and live in, a, in condemnation that Jesus wants to deliver you from, that God loves you so much he wants to deliver you from that he sent his own Son. So he condemns sin in the flesh in order, here's the beautiful verse, every time I talk about this, it's exciting to me, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, now are you with me? What is the law? They're righteous requirements. They're not ugly or mean or awful, they're righteous requirements. We just couldn't fulfill the requirements. Here it says, and I love how it's worded, so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in whom? In us. In us. So what happened? Jesus fulfilled, he never sinned, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, he shed his blood for us, he rose again, and he imparted, I think the King James likes to use the word imputed, he placed upon us his righteousness. Your own righteousness isn't good. The Bible teaches this on your best day. Your righteousness is as a filthy rags before the Lord. There is none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us has strayed and gone our own way. But the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He's our hero. He's the one that did it. He's the one that fixed it. So you can turn to yourself, but it's not going to work well. 
You can turn to anything else, but it's not going to work well because Jesus is the only answer. So the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that line trips people up. Because they'll read that and they'll say, that's my problem, Tracy. I live too much in the flesh. So these promises aren't mine. These promises aren't mine because, you know, I just think about how I lost my cool the other day and, and how I purposely and rudely cut somebody off in traffic and, and how I helped myself to a tool at work and how I, and, you know, the list goes on and on. You can fill in the blanks, whatever you struggle with. And I say, so I'm fleshly, so I do stand in condemnation because these promises are for those who walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Well, here's our problem again. We are so ingrained with a condemnation mentality. We're so ingrained with that. You know, if I got up here and I preached really hard that we're just a bunch of miserable sinners and we're huge disappointments to God and we better get our act together because God doesn't take kindly to our miserable efforts. Now, if I would preach that with some real vim and vigor, there'd be some of you who would leave today and go, that was good preaching today. Man, he let us have it. Man, oh man. He stepped on our toes. He did this. He did that. There's a time for showing what the scripture says, but we would say, ah, I'm leaving here knowing I'm a miserable sinner. Okay, I want to tell you this very calmly. Without Jesus, you're a dirty, miserable sinner. Do you feel better? Okay, I hope that helped you. Without Jesus, you are a miserable sinner. Without God and without hope in the world. That's what the scriptures teach. But in Christ... You're not that. So I, I want us to see this, that this isn't a thing of i got to earn it and keep walking in the Spirit somehow and not being fleshly at any time. Romans 7, 6 says this, but now by dying to once, what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's how you determine whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit. Not if you, it's not determined by, I had a bad day, I was mean, I was hateful, I was, you know, I stole something, I did whatever. By the way, just for the, I'm not condoning any of that. It's just illustration, once you know that. But it's not judged by that, it's judged by this. Did you say, I don't want Jesus, I'll do this on my own? If that's what you said, then you're living in the flesh. If you said, I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus, then you're living in the Spirit. I want you to follow that so you're not saying, I'm condemned because I, I'm flesh. Have you read the New Testament? Do you know how often Paul was telling Christians, stop this, start that, quit that? What are they doing? They're, they've been indulging their flesh. So if that was the case, then everyone would be condemned. But we do struggle with sin. I get that from the Bible. It says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so it's not a matter of how good you lived yesterday or today, so I'm fleshly, but tomorrow I'm going to really be spiritual, and then the next day I might be fleshly. It's all about where's your answer for your eternal life? Is it found in your good deeds? And apart from God, I'm going to do right, I'm going to behave myself, I'm going to, I'm going to earn it, then you're walking in the flesh. If you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus, regardless of how bad a day you have tomorrow or yesterday or today, then you're walking in the law of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has changed our lives from the inside and is working its way out. So now, I, why do I focus on this so sharply today? Because I want to tell you what my end game is. 
my end game is, is instead of sharing an unbiblical concept, did you hear that? An unbiblical concept that we need to teach condemnation. We need to keep people feeling bad about themselves because if they feel really bad about themselves, they won't sin. I mean, if we, if we teach grace and the mercy of God, then people just sin like wild. Well, first of all, I don't think people have problems sinning no matter what you teach, but I want you to know this. And sometimes it could spin off into that, but it's because we're not understanding the true teaching of Scripture. Because when the Bible teaches grace and mercy, that came from Jesus. He's the one that brought that. So it seems odd for me to say, I better not teach what Jesus brought. I better teach what Moses brought. I don't want to teach the ministry of condemnation and death. I want to teach the ministry of the spirit of life, which is found in Jesus and in salvation. So, we have to position ourselves to embrace the biblical method of walking in the spirit. Now, if we walk in the spirit, we will not be soft on sin. Why do I say that? Because the scripture says that. If you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. If you walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. So spiritual depth comes from doing it the Bible way, not the human way. So then we actually embrace this concept that's not soft on sin, but actually produces a victory over sin. And that's what we'll discover next week. How can we ditch the condemnation? How can we ditch the discouragement? How can we ditch the self-righteousness if we go the other way? For a walk with God that's joy-filled and leads us to overcoming sin, not indulging our sin. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suppose everybody here would say, I got some things that I would like to deal with in my life. And that's done through the Spirit, not through you just saying, I'm going to behave better. Because the more you walk in the Spirit, the more you begin to know Jesus, the more you fall in love with Him, the more you grow in your walk with God, the less you sin. It's God's principle. It's the way God designed things to do. The more you say, I'm going to behave. You just can't do it. There's something about the law that causes us to sin. That's, the Bible teaches that. Society teaches that. I remember I was walking along with my family, and there was some fresh concrete. And we, we were kids, but we were old enough to know better. And one of my brothers, knucklehead, he reads the sign and says, don't step, don't touch, don't walk on. He walks right up by it. You know what he does? He goes like this and puts his foot in it. And then he goes, oh, I see why I shouldn't have done that. Now my foot's covered with, with concrete. It's covered with cement. I told you a story before. Every, there's this one hotel near the water and the balconies. People would on occasion fish off the balconies, but it's just on occasion. But they said, we've got to stop this. On occasion's too much. So they posted signs, no fishing from the balcony. The fishing from the balcony rose exponentially after they posted the sign, no fishing from the balcony. There's something inside us. I don't know. Well, i got to try it. It must be a lot of fun. Or nobody's going to tell me what I can or can't do. I don't even fish, but I'm going to go buy a fishing pole and get up here and fish off that because I'm going to do what I want to do. There's something about the law that produces all manner of sin in us. So we're set free from the law of sin and death, and we embrace the law of the spirit of life. And when we embrace the law of the spirit of life, we don't get more sinful we get less sinful unless we're not understanding the scripture at all. So here's your assignment for the week, because I know everybody loves homework. Here's your assignment for the week. Take notice. See if you can remember to do this. Take notice how often your walk with God is condemnation-driven and seek to break that habit. What will happen is 
and I'm not prophesying this over you. I just know me and human beings. I got a suspicion that you're going to do something wrong this week. Now, again, I'm not speaking that over you. I just got this suspicion. And when you do, if you're a believer, you're not going to be happy with that. You're going to go, oh, Lord, I don't want to do that. Forgive me. And then you will decide, depending upon the gravity of the sin, how much punishment you deserve. And so you'll decide maybe it wasn't too big of a deal. Maybe you said, I'm not going to eat that second piece of pie. I make a commitment. You eat the second piece of pie and say, oh, God, I can't believe I did that. And so now I'm going to be condemned, shameful, miserable for a couple hours. Maybe you did something that was on our scale of how we judge things really bad. I have to beat myself up and be shame-filled and condemned for a whole week because i got to really prove to God that I'm really sorry for that. Here's what I suggest. Don't waste a single minute in shame and condemnation. Not a single minute. Satan loves it when you do that because you're no use to you, the kingdom, or anybody else. But what you should do is say, Lord, that's not your best for me and that's not my best for you. I just ask you, just help me, Holy Spirit, to say no to sin and yes to you. And then dust yourself off and go on. Tracy, but shouldn't we beat ourselves up? No. Jesus already took those lashes for you. Jesus already took that beating for you. Jesus already took all that. So I'm not saying be soft on sin, but I'm saying just realize, okay. And then if you'll just deal with that, you can go on and be a believer and not waste a day, a week, a month wallowing around in that. So do your very best this week to catch when you're being condemnation driven and stop, take a breath, bring that before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to help you drop the shame, the guilt, and all that because I know this. The Bible says this. I like the Bible better than my own emotions. The Bible says this, that if we know Jesus, we've been made perfect forever. That Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let's pray together. Lord, we love your word. Lord, your word challenges me, it challenges us to do things scripturally not naturally. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, help us to embrace the truth that we are forgiven. You are not condemning us. You have placed upon us your righteousness. And we just want that righteousness to be lived out through us. So Holy Spirit, help us. We claim this Bible verse over our lives that you will cause us both to will and desire and to do what is right and what pleases you. 